You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast where the host is constantly stretching to find opening music suited to the theme of the story. We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. Welcome to another jet lag, baby screaming on planes episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is a weekly internet radio show brought to you by me, Sean Engle, that's going to be doing the simple thing of covering the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two most underappreciated and by me most loved Green Lantern characters out there. Hi. This is Sean Engel, obviously, and I'd like to welcome you, or welcome you back to the show. I hope everyone enjoyed the past couple of episodes. Covering Emerald Dawn 1 and 2 was really fun, and getting the origins of the two main characters, both the heroes and the villains, i.e. being Hal Jordan the hero and Sinestro the villain, was really fun. Again, I'd like to throw a thanks out to Michael Bailey for suggesting that I cover Emerald Dawn 2, which, in turn made me want to go back and cover Emerald Dawn as well. I also hope that everyone didn't notice that over the past couple of weeks, the episodes have been coming out, well, without me posting them on my regular once-a-week schedule. I posted a couple of these in advance simply because, well, as you get from the jet lag comment at the beginning of the show, I have been out of the country for the past week. It was my wife's 40th birthday, and she told me that I was going to take her to Italy, specifically to Rome, for her 40th birthday, and that's what we did. So I had a great time in Rome, saw some really great artwork, ate some really great food, and uh, just had a generally good time. But I wanted to make sure that I kept the podcast going on a weekly basis, so I recorded a few prior to this, and... Hopefully they all came out fine, you know, no delays or anything. So I think that's kind of important. If you're going to do a weekly podcast, make sure that you're at least getting it done weekly. At least that's what I'm holding myself to. However, despite all the effort that I put into the podcast, I did make one small error that a kind listener by the name of Ben Perlman commented about. In my coverage of the first three issues of Emerald Dawn, I mentioned that the second issue, Emerald Dawn 2, not Emerald Dawn 2, but Emerald Dawn Issue 2, was titled The Trial. Well, whether it be my dyslexia or my general just not being attentive, Ben pointed out that the actual title of the comic is The Trail. And I guess I just kind of glossed over it because I, again, was thinking that it might be due to the idea that it was following the Joseph Campbell heroic story arc, and that the second part of the book would be a trial for the character. Yes, Ben, you caught it, and I thank you immensely for pointing it out. You know, I'm glad I actually have listeners who care enough to write in and let me know when I make silly mistakes like that. Because if you had any idea how obsessive-compulsive I am over getting things right... 
you would realize that a simple error like misreading the word trail would just bug me to no end. So thanks again, Ben, for writing in. And also, I'd like to recommend anyone else, if you want to go to the website, justoneoftheguys.libsyn.com, there are comment sections, and you can comment on the individual episodes that are posted up there. But right now, we're going to take a quick break, play a few promos for some podcasts you should be listening to, and then we're going to come back to our normal format of covering the Green Lantern comics. This time, we're going to be covering... John Stewart and his four-part story arc that led to the Green Lantern Mosaic title. Yes, it's a four-part story arc, as I previously stated, titled Mosaic. So, sit back, fire up your MP3 player, and get ready for some Green Lantern-y goodness. Right after this. Hey, kids! Comics! Hey, Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. But you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Uh, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What? Just listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snappage. Short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics, that's true, that's good. Liking it, liking this pitch, carry on. Right, we talk about comics. We do, we talk about comics, we read comics, and then we talk about them, because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent, keep going. And then... We sing! Badly! Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Ages Comics! Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? We violate the treaty, Captain. Red alert! All hands, battle station! What are you scratching at? Incorrect. Can you just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands battle station. No! Monthly Mondays, available the second Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. 
on May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. not true. That's impossible. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it flamed, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breathless. Heaving breaths. Heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right. Or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky, speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libsyn.com. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. The ship, our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy, can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the mole man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now, mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the pawns in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You Earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more, and the Fantastic is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. 
stop! We must not end on the castle of Diablo! My journey has ended, and it shall sustain him to the be drained of all elemental life. So, speak Galactus! Simon! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Cast. FFCast.Libsyn.com And welcome back. If you get a chance, check out episode, I think it's episode 8 of the Fantastic Ass. Stephen Lacey put together that promo, except the original promo they did to see if it timed out well with the uh, Fantastic Four music, he did pretty much all by himself. And one of the characters that came out of the recording was the Hulk, which Stephen did with a kind of unique accent. Basically, he turned the Hulk into gay Mexican Hulk. (laughs) I don't know why that's funny. It shouldn't be, but it is. Go check out the Fantastic Cast. It is one of the most consistently funny comic book podcasts out there. Stephen and Andrew have a great rapport, and I love listening to their show, and I bet you would too. But enough cheering on other podcasts. Let's get on with this show, which is going to be covering right now Green Lantern episode, or Green Lantern issue, number 14. The title of the comic was Structures. The writer for this one was Gerard Jones. Penciler this time around was M.D. or Mark D. Bright. Inker was Romeo Tangal. Letterer was Albert de Guzman. Colorist was Anthony Tolan. Associate editor was Kevin Dooley. And editor was Andy Helfer. The story opens as a young couple walk from their transplanted home on Oa toward the boundary of their city. The young man says that they will be the vanguard of a new order as they reach out to these new civilizations and species. But, as the two approach the red-skinned, yellow-mohawked aliens with their arms outstretched, the aliens fire upon the couple, setting the two ablaze. The aliens marvel at how these people came to them unprepared. They also feel that it'd be interesting to learn about them, as they begin to take over the planet. Cut to John Stewart, the Green Lantern overseeing the Mosaic world on Oa, playing a tune on a piano he got from... somewhere. He comments on the structure of the music, and how it can compare to the structures around him, from the architecture to people's lives. Spouting some more philosophical gobbledygook, John gets a signal from his ring and flies out across the Owen cityscapes. It appears that a large group of humans are shooting at the red aliens who are encamped behind a barrier. With a little help from some well-tossed dynamite, the humans bring down the barrier and plug half a dozen bullets into the red alien. But, as the humans begin to advance, John Stewart flies in and corrals the mob. Trying to keep the peace, John asks why they are shooting at the aliens. The mob tells John about the murder of the two teens, and demand that he make the Guardians send them home now. John says what happened must have been a misunderstanding between the two races, and he needs to get both sides of the story. What he does get is a bolt of red energy to the back, which rebounds off his ring-powered shield and onto the bodies of the humans who are standing by. Seeing the injured humans, John vows that he won't let the aliens make him a killer again. We are then treated to a flashback retelling of the story, where John and the Martian Manhunter were tracking an anti-life aspect on Zanshi, and John allowed the death of all the people on the planet. 
but a blast from the alien's weapons brings John back to reality, and he restrains them with construct shackles and begins to probe their minds. Seeing that they work on a sort of hive-mind mentality, John tries to reason with the aliens, until a bolt of yellow energy from the alien knocks him out. Swiftly recovering, John takes down the attacking aliens and digs up a section of the forest to place it between the opposing factions. Saying that John only wants to help the aliens, the humans are picked up by John's ring constructs and taken to safety as John realizes that he needs to get help from the Guardians of the Universe. John pleads his case before the Guardians, saying that the aliens are expansionist, empathic, yet unwilling to compromise. John begs the Guardians to move or quarantine the aliens. The Guardians spend little time on their response, which is a stern no. Cut to a trench coat wearing man, quietly leaving his home. He dons some eye protection and a rebreather and runs outside the boundary of his transplanted city. He runs through the other cities with different atmospheres and gravity levels until he reaches another Earth city where he crashes in on a man operating a ham radio. Exhausted, the runner tells the radio operator to alert them. Meanwhile, in a home in Hope Springs, a rally call goes out over the radio as a man cocks his shotgun. Hot Widow Mom Rose, who's trying to make an alliance between some alien races trapped on Oa, tells the gun nut to sit the f*** down. He retorts, saying that the aliens are killing kids, and that her son Toby might be the next victim. Resolved to protect her son, Rose calls off the interspecies get-together, grabs her shotgun, and heads out. Cut back to John, arguing with the Guardians, claiming that one of theirs brought these beings here, and that they should be the protectors. The Guardians counter, saying that they made John the protector, and whatever outcome arises from the conflict, be it useful or detrimental, will give them something to learn from. John angrily shouts that they're treating this like some kind of experiment, and then he realizes that he will have to be the one to solve this problem. But John surmises it'll take more than just moving them to the other side of the planet. And with that, John heads to his quarters to read up on possible solutions. Meanwhile, a mob of armed citizens are moving out under cover of darkness. They approach the forest barrier that John put between the two cities and begin to make their way stealthily through it. In his study, John is poring over numerous books, trying to find a way to peacefully resolve the situation. But like anyone studying the works of Jefferson, Lennon, and Lewis Mumford, he passes right out, face embedded in the tomes. Suddenly, a voice in his head signals trouble, and he awakens. Wondering if it was all a dream, he heads out to see what's going on. What is going on is a massive firefight between the aliens and the humans, with Rose looking on in horror. The humans seem to have the aliens on the ropes as they push forward. But watching from a hidden bunker, the aliens ponder how they will face these aggressors. They feel that their expansion will be a challenge, and as they spring from their underground bunker preparing to fire on the attacking humans, they know that the challenge will be enjoyable.
Now, obviously, since I'm doing a podcast focusing on Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the character of Jon Stewart was never really my favorite Green Lantern. I mean, that doesn't mean I dislike him, it just means that I like Jon and Kyle more. But these series of books actually kind of turned me around on the character. He was, you know, I didn't know much about him prior to this issue. Well, from aside from the little that I knew about him from Crisis on Infinite Earths. But he became a really interesting character, and he was a nice parallel to the hot-headedness of Guy and the sort of just braggadocio of Hal. He was the thoughtful, intellectual one who would actually take time to try and study and get information about things before he just brushed headlong in. It makes him a really interesting character, and this four-part story with the Mosaic world and the ongoing story of Green Lantern and Mosaic is really going to flesh out the character a lot more than, a, from what I've gathered, the previous issues of Green Lantern did. But again, if you're wanting information about the previous ongoings with Jon Stewart as Green Lantern, go ahead and go over to the Green Lantern's Light podcast and check them out. Right now they're covering the era, the Steve Englehart and Joe Staten era, of Green Lantern, where Jon Stewart is the Green Lantern of that story. And with that, we're ready to head on to Into Notes, which we'll go ahead and start out with the cover. And it's been a running theme during all these shows that the Guardians have been kind of jerks in making their buildings and making, you know, the surface of Oa, or maybe not making the surface of Oa, but having the surface of Oa be a bright yellow color. And as anyone who knows anything about Green Lantern of this time... Yellow is a detriment to them. They can't do anything with yellow around. Well, on the cover, I've got to assume this planet in the background is Oa, and it is completely and totally yellow. Now, I don't know what's going on. I don't know whether the colorists are just, you know, unaware of that story element. It wouldn't seem to be that way, because Anthony Tolan's been doing the coloring on the Green Lantern book for quite some while. So, why is the entire planet of Oa yellow, and the Green Lantern's rings ineffectual against yellow? Maybe it's just me, and it's not actually the color yellow. It's maybe an ochre, or a vermilion, or some weird color like that, that essentially doesn't affect Green Lantern rings, because it's not yellow-specific. But other than that, we've got John towering on the front cover with his arms crossed and his rings sort of powered up, while underneath them the aliens and the humans are pointing guns at each other, getting ready to have a big old firefight. However, it does kind of look like the humans might be a bit outclassed, because the aliens are carrying gigantic Space bazookas, basically. You know, I mentioned in the beginning that a lot of these comics don't have a sort of 90s feel. Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of 90s elements in this comic that I'll be pointing out along the way. Then on the inside, page 1, panel 4, we get the blonde kid who's going to try and meet with the aliens going out and saying the typical, we come in peace thing. Of course, this ends up horribly badly, because, well, this kid just doesn't get it, and plus he's got the most horrendously awful shirt ever depicted in a comic book on. 
You know those Garth Brooks shirts where it had the it was the long button up shirt, but it had like the two rectangles on it and it was black. Think that except even worse. So here's a bit of the more of the horribleness that's beginning to bleed through in the comic. Then on page two, panel one, we get the aliens firing on the kid, and man, this is a horrible death. It's not your typical phaser or laser blast that just disintegrates him. It looks like, and I don't know if you guys ever played the role-playing game Star Frontiers, but there are, I'm remembering there was a gun in that called the Needler, which shot out a burst of sort of needles at, instead of a beam blast. It was a projectile weapon type gun, and it kind of looks like that's what's hitting this kid, except instead of it being projectile weapons, it's multiple beams of energy hitting this kid and basically setting him ablaze. It's a pretty horrific scene, pretty horrific graphic, and it gets the point across that these aliens are not to be tampered with, especially when, in page 2, panel 2, they shoot the girl who's done nothing as well. So you get the idea that these are going to be pretty horrendous protagonist. Then, of course, on panels 3 and 4, we get the first images of the aliens, and here's where it does get to be a bit of a 90s trope. The aliens are these big, muscular, red-skinned aliens that have giant, black, sort of bug eyes. Well, not really bug eyes in the matter that they're segmented, but they're just dark, imposing eyes. Plus, they're all wearing cut-off shirts, or shirts that are cut off with shoulder pads, and they're pretty incredibly muscular. They look like they've probably been working out at the beach too much and pumping a bit too much iron. Plus, they also have the aforementioned gigantic, oversized, ridiculous alien guns. But the one thing that makes them typically 90s is they have mohawks. Well, not really mohawks, but they have the stripe of hair in the middle of their head that's all spiked up. All spiked up and basically running down as a sort of pseudo-mullet in the back. So they've got a mo-mullet. I don't know if that's an actual term, but that's what I'm going to use to describe these people's hairdo. It is very stereotypically 90s. Then page 3, panel 4. I was kind of wondering where Hal got his coffee maker when he was in that sphere and uh, the guy in his Nord storyline. Now I'm really kind of wondering where John got his grand piano here on Oa. I mean, we can assume it's been a while since John's left Earth and been on Oa, but it's an actual grand piano. It's wooden, has the ivory keys and everything. It's not a construct, and I'm wondering... Who ships grand pianos, you know, halfway across the universe? So, stranger things have happened. Page 6, panel 1. We get a shot of all the humans with their guns firing on the aliens. And it's really nice to see that Oberon has made it to Oa and that he's shooting at the aliens as well. Well, it may not be Oberon, but it does look like a little small guy who's bald-headed with the fraying hair who looks typically like Oberon from the Justice League International. So... I thought that was a sort of neat character design that they put in. And same page, panel 3. Okay, I can imagine that the humans would have a readily 
ample supply of shotguns around. But dynamite? I mean, I know there's the stereotype of people in the South loving their guns and their trucks, but I don't think I know anyone who has access to dynamite. Maybe it's just me. Maybe they actually beamed up a mining town where they had access to dynamite, but it just seems kind of out of place. But it's there, so you just go with it. Page 8, panel 5, we see John trying to calm the humans down and not fire on the aliens and try and work this out, see if there could be a way that they could actually talk with each other and communicate. To which, on the next panel, John basically gets sprayed in the back with a beam of red energy, basically, you know, almost lighting him on fire. So you've got to be pretty thankful that his ring was there to deflect the energy from him, otherwise he'd be as dead as those kids at the beginning of the book. Page 10, we get a flashback of some of the events that happened in Cosmic Odyssey, where John Stewart and John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, went to the planet Zanshi and had their adventures, and John basically allowed the planet to be destroyed. It's something that's weighed heavily on John's mind for a long time, and it's going to be a part of his redemptive arc in this series. Page 11, panel 7, as John's got the aliens wrapped up in sort of a ring construct version of shackles, one of the alien breaks loose from his shackles with some sort of yellow energy. Now, I don't know if these aliens can channel energy, and it doesn't look like he has anything yellow on his arm. The only thing yellow on his body that he has is his mohawk hair. So, in order to break out of these ring construct shackles, I'm wondering if he just has really, really hairy yellow wrists. Could be. And of course, page 14, panel 1. John's brilliant idea to separate these two opposing factions is to dig up a giant section of the forest around the city, the human city, and place it between the two aliens. Yes, it's very dense, but I don't think it's going to be much of a deterrent from two groups of people who really want to kill each other. I mean, if planting a bunch of trees in between warring factions was the way to stop conflict... The Sierra Club would be the greatest military masterminds in the world. Page 15, panel 4. Get another great evidence of Guardian Dickery. As John goes there to plead his case about, you know, dealing with the aliens, and the Guardians just basically brush him off with a simple no. No explanation given, no reasoning behind it, just no. Yep, the Guardians of this era are just a bunch of gigantic tools. Page 16, we get a nice series of panels how the humans are able to communicate with each other, being separated by these vast, differing cities on Oa. We see this one guy who's kind of, again, yellow, spiky-haired guy, put on some goggles and a rebreather mask and run out in between the cities. Now, if you remember from the earlier Green Lantern issues, there are varying different atmospheres and varying different levels of gravity that this guy has to run through, and you see that as he gets outside of one of the cities, he looks like he's weighed down by the gravity of this one city, and he can't breathe through the other one, and finally when he reaches the other human city, he can stand up and take the rebreather off. It's it's a nice way of reminding the reader that this is an alien planet where there are varying different races of people who need varying different environments to live in. 
Plus, with the trench coat and the yellow spiky hair, the guy who's running with the rebreather mask does look a bit like John Constantine. Just saying. Then on page 17, panel 8, we get the fact that Hot Widow Mom Rose is much like the rest of the rednecks in this little story. A gun nut who likes to keep her shotgun really, really close because... Basically, she's having dinner with this Zudarian, and I don't know what the other alien is, but he looks like a Frankenstein monster with a really high bowl-cut haircut. Plus, he's, you know, kind of pea-green, so I don't exactly know what alien is, but you would think if you're going to have a peace talk with some of the aliens, you just wouldn't keep your shotgun right handy on the table next to it. It doesn't really promote the image that you're trying to make, oh, peaceful relationships with them. Then jumping to page 19, panel 2, we get a shot of the Guardians after they've told John. Well, they really didn't tell John much of anything other than that they were just going to let whatever happens, happens. But the Guardians here, they've got a look of smugness on their face that is just really annoying. If these people weren't essentially the ultimate power in the universe... I'd want to punch them in their face. They are smug little bastards, and they annoy the heck out of me. But this is their purpose in the story, so have to deal with it. Then my final note is on page 21, panel 1. John goes back to his bright yellow apartment, again, and starts to read up on ideas of how to settle this conflict in a peaceful manner. Now, of the people that he mentioned that he read were Jefferson, Lewis Mumford, and Lenin. Lenin. Really? Communist Manifesto Lenin? This is the guy you want to use as your basis for resolving conflicts? Doesn't make sense to me. And maybe it's just my lack of knowledge or the fact that I'm not the biggest scholar on all things social, but I had no idea who Lewis Mumford was. And of course, when you don't know anything about something, where's the first place you go to? Wikipedia. And Wikipedia basically states that Lewis Mumford was an American historian, sociologist, philosopher of technology, and influential literary cleric, critic, known for his study of cities and urban architecture. And he was also a believer that our use of technology and tools and language were what defined us from primitive cultures or from animals. However, not knowing what Mumford was, all I could really think Mumford was, was this. Weep for yourself, my man, you'll never be what is in your heart. Weep, little lion man, you're not as brave as you were at the start. Rate yourself and rake yourself, take all the courage you have. Wasted on fixing all the problems that you made in your own head But it was not your fault but mine And it was your heart on the line I really fucked it up this time Deny my dear Deny my dear Yeah, call me a learning snob or whatever, but when I heard Mumford, all I could think of was Mumford and Son, so... My bad, but it's a good song regardless. However, that draws to a close my notes for the episode. So this time around, we're going to do something we haven't done in a long time, and we're going to take a look at some of the amazing ads in the comic. 
I can't wait. This is something I've been having fun with, and I'm ready to get back to it. So we start out with the opening inside cover, which is another advertisement for the Super... Well, still not the Super NES, the NES version of the game Beetlejuice. It's got a nice image of Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice, and Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin as the two ghosts living in the house with them. It is probably one of my favorite Tim Burton movies, and again, not so good a game, but one of my favorite roles that Alec Baldwin has ever been in. Then further in, we get a splash page for the Great Eastern Conventions with the biggest show of the year in New York with a ton of people like Al Williamson, Al Williamson, Peter David, Rob Liefeld, Chuck Dixon. Let's see who else. We've got Joe Linzer, Joe Kubert, Ron Friends, Neil Adams, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Man, if I were in New York during the 1990s, I would have loved to gone to a convention like this. These sound like a bunch of great people with this one. Then the next page, we get a comic book offer, 50% off, and it's a splash page for Mile High Comics, and they're promoting the big comics of the time, including Captain America, Punisher, I guess the two different types of Spider-Man, the red-suited and the black-suited Spider-Man, and then we've got the two DC big ones with Batman and Superman. So, 50% off comic books. Pretty neat bargain. Then we get a page for Making It with Olympic. And basically, this is an ad for Olympic Sales Club, which sells, what is it, a catalog of Christmas cards, stationery, all-occasion cards, and gifts. So basically, you sold a boatload of these Christmas cards to whatever family member or person on the street that you could get to talk to you, and you could earn awards for such prizes as a GE walkie-talkie set, a GE clock radio, a GE dual cassette AM FM stereo, I wonder who sponsored these people, a mountain bike, or even a Nintendo action game system. Yes, it doesn't say Nintendo Entertainment System, it says Nintendo Action System, so I'm kind of wondering whether they conned the kids into some sort of Nintendo knockoff made by GE. I wouldn't put it past them. Then the next page we get the price list for all the comics that East Coast Comics are selling. We've got Stuff from Amazing Spider-Man all the way up to X-Men Classic. So, I'm looking through this. Most of it seems to be DC stuff. I'm seeing Detective and a bit of Superman, some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and some Justice League of America. But, yeah, at this point in time, it was pretty much all Marvel. So, there you have it. Later on, we get a half-panel and turn sideways page for the Ultimate Game Club which uh, promotes games from the Sega Genesis, Game Boy, TurboGrafx-16, and Super Nintendo. And underneath that, you get an advertisement for the 1991 annuals, which were the Armageddon 2001 line. And this one's for the Justice League of America number 5, and it says, Disguised as Captain Atom, Wave Rider visits the JLA headquarters, where he finds Guy Gardner as everyone's hero, and Ice as an old maid. Hey, I don't see anything wrong with that universe. Well except for the fact that Ice is an old maid, but Guy Gardner being everyone's hero, I'm down with that. Next page, we get the ad for, He is the luckiest young man on Earth. He is a being of limitless blazing power. He is searching for his lost parents. He is in way over his head. He is the Comet. Yes, it's the Impact Comics that were DC's try in the 90s of 
getting kids more in, in reading comics. If I recall, essentially these comics were spin-offs or offshoots of characters that were founded originally in Archie Comics that DC had licensed and tried to promote. It didn't work out so well, but from what I've heard, a lot of these comics really were a pretty fun read. Of course, we're treated again to the hodgepodge ad of, you know, build muscles in seven days and drawing superheroes, plus an ad from the American Heart Association, essentially telling comic readers that now they can live up to five years longer, which is awesome because that means a lot more collecting can go on. Then the next page, we get basically an order form for any of the Impact comics, including Legend of the Shield, the Comet, the Jaguar, the Fly, and the Web. And you could get any or all of these five great titles for either ten fifty per 12 issues, or you could get all of them for $50. That might sound like a bargain, but I'm kind of wondering if a few of these issues even made it to the issue 12 level. I don't remember. Then on the back inside cover, you get an advertisement for the Atari Lynx. Only $99.85 would buy you essentially... Well, it's basically a Game Boy Color before the Game Boy Color. And it had some neat games. It had Gauntlet, Rampage, Paperboy, Clax, which is kind of a Tetris-type stacking game. Kind of think a mix of Tetris and Breakout. Rygar and Xenophobe. Some fun games, but... Unfortunately, Atari really didn't market the Lynx well, and Nintendo pretty much had a stranglehold on the handheld gaming system at the time, so the Lynx kind of was a passing phase and really didn't catch on, sadly, because some of these games look pretty cool. And then on the back outside cover, we get an ad for the Konami game Laser Invasion. Now, this one is a weird one. From the looks of the game screenshots, it looks like your typical well, fighting simulation game on lines of Contra, but then there are some moments that have sort of a 3D effect where you're flying around in an attack helicopter. An attack helicopter that looks suspiciously like Airwolf. However, by all rights, no helicopter can ever be as cool But I guess one of the neat things, and they don't really show it in the advertisement, is that there's a device that comes along with this game that you can basically send in a $10 coupon to get $10, or you can send in a coupon to get $10 back on. That is the Laser Scope Voice Command Optical Targeting Headset. Now, I have no idea what this device looks like but I can only imagine if it were like any of the other peripherals aside from the gamepad that the Nintendo NES had, it probably didn't work at all. But this game ad sure tries to sell it, and I'm certain there were probably kids out there who were all into it. But that is it for ads, sadly. Hopefully next time around we'll have something from the Three Musketeers guys. I mean, these ads weren't bad, but... I look for those, I live for those Three Musketeers ads. Those are fun. I would also like to mention that, unfortunately, these series of issues have in no way been reprinted, at least to my knowledge. So, get on it, DC. These are good issues. Give them a reprint. Give them a trade paperback treatment. They definitely deserve it. So, I hope you enjoyed the show. It's good to be back after vacation, and I'm ready to get into some more Green Lantern-y goodness. 
with the second episode of the Mosaic storyline in Green Lantern number 15. So come back next Friday, and we'll see you then. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to all die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys Podcast. You can also search for you on Facebook. I mean, you can find me there because I don't have an account on Facebook. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you can obviously spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for the show was We Built This City by Starship. Not Jefferson Starship, not Jefferson Airplane, just Starship. Off their album, Knee Deep in the Hoopla. If you'd like to buy this song or buy this album, you can go to the iTunes and download it there. Or, if you're a clever shopper, you can hit the link at twotruefreaks.libson.com, click the link there, and go to Amazon.com and download the song, album, or buy the album there. You'll be making sure that quality Demonsicore podcasts stay on the air indefinitely. And, due to my association with the Two True Freaks website and my recent trip to Italy, I was approached by... <clears throat> members of the Demanda Corps, and they said that I really need to start promoting this a lot heavier. So please do what you can to help out the two true freaks. <laughs>